Please turn with, turn with me, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> Years ago in chapel, I recall a speaker coming to speak and talking about the matter of priorities and saying that for all of us in life, the real issue is the matter of being able to establish those priorities. And I feel that over the years, in talking to students who have come in to talk to me, 90-plus percent of the problems they face have to do with the establishing of proper priorities. It is my custom regularly. In fact, uh, right now is one of those times that I stop to try to reassess my schedule and try to figure out what the priorities are and uh, what I should be doing. In fact, uh, I'm doing that in the last couple of weeks, and this morning as I ran, even processing some of the things that I need to do to restructure. But I think for all of us is that need, and even to tell people it isn't the issue of uh, saying no to evil things, we already know that. It is being able to say no to some very, very good things that are not the best things for your life and for mine. But as I establish my priority for today and my priorities for every day, there is something that must be at the very top of everything for me as it must be for you. It doesn't matter what your schedule is or what your occupation ends up being. It must always be the very most important thing in life to you. This is true for you as an individual. As you get married, it's true for your marriage. It's true for your home. For those of you who pastor a church, it's true for the church. And if I were to ask you what is the most important thing, I realize for some that you might say the relationship to Christ is the most important thing, and it is in one sense, but we'll come to that in a moment. You might say evangelism is, but there's something even before that, and that's your relationship to the Word of God. I remember when I started college, the president got up the first day in chapel, and he said, this school is not Christocentric, it is bibliocentric. And I, I paused with that. I mean, that was, it took me back a bit. This school is not Christ-centered, it is Bible-centered. But as the years go by, I become more and more sure that that is true. And you say, well, why that? Because, you see, there are many Christs today. But the Christ whom we must serve is the Christ of the Bible, and it must begin with the Word of God. I remember years ago going on the campus of Cal State Fullerton, and as I walked on campus, I saw this great big banner up, put up there by the Eastern religions, and it had this tree, and the, the trunk of the tree said Messiah, and one branch said Confucius, another branch said Buddha, another branch said Jesus. They had a Christ, they had a Messiah, but their Messiah was not the Messiah of the Bible. You read Karl Barth's works on Romans, very, very Christ-centered. I guess from my opinion, I don't think the Christ that he finds is necessarily the Christ of the Bible at times. There is the Christ of some of our hymns, and the Christ of some of our sermons is not the Christ of the Bible. I even think of a passage, let me just tell you about it and you can read it later, Luke 14, interesting passage to me because, you know, even when we project what Christ is, we say to someone, you know, what you did was not very Christ-like. <laughs> By whose standard? Yours or the Bible's? Let me just tell you what happened. Jesus went to church, actually went to the synagogue, and when he got done, someone said, how about coming for dinner? So he did. 
When he ended up going to their house for dinner, he ends up there and there's a fellow who needs to be healed. Now, now the guy's been sick for years. All right? Fellow's been sick for years, and if it were I, I guarantee what I would have done because I would not have wanted to offend the people who invited me for dinner. The fellow's been sick for years. He can wait a few more hours. We're going to eat here. I'll meet you later today, and we'll take care of this thing. I mean, no problem. But he didn't. He healed him right there, offending everybody. Then he walked in to sit down, and everybody starts moving front and right because that's the most honored seat. And they all move up that way, and Jesus is a guest. He stops everybody. He says, notice what you're doing. Everybody's moving up here, and he, he offends everybody. Then he even turns to the host who invited him. And he says to the host who invited him, he says, do you realize what you've done? Look at the people you've invited. They're all people who can invite you back. Why don't you invite people who can do nothing in return for you? He leaves there, and Luke tells us the crowds are following. And we think it's great when we see great crowds. We think, boy, God's blessing. I'm not necessarily sure that's true. Jesus turned to the crowds and says, unless you hate your father, hate your mother, hate your brother, hate your sister, you can't be my disciple, and many left. You see, if I did that, there are people who say to me, that's not very Christ-like. But friends, that's very Christ-like. Do you understand? Because that's the Christ of the Bible. Now, because of that, I bring you back to this. We must begin with the Word of God. It must become the most important thing in our life. Now, now by saying that, I come to this passage, and what we're drawing from the central part of all we have to say is a passage you know well. And it's the one in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, that says, Like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the Word. You know, it's interesting because when we talk about the Word of God, and I realize for you, you may prioritize your life and say, All right, the Bible is the most important thing for me. Years back, I was preparing for a couple of marathons, and in the process of that, I knew that on days when I would have to get up early to be able to do two and a half hours before I went to school to teach, I realized that what might happen is that I might end up running and decide I don't have any time left for the Word. So I organized it and decided no Bible, no running, no reading, no running. That was the way it was. And so therefore, that's how I made sure it became scheduled in my day. But that's not even what we're talking about here. See, you might be able to discipline yourself and say, all right, hey, I read the Bible every day. Remember a fellow in college, we'd start out the door, and he'd say, just give me a minute, and he'd run back in, drop at the foot of his bed, read two verses, say a quick prayer, and in three minutes he'd be at the door ready to go. Uh, maybe that does something for you to think maybe you've done it. It's not what we're talking about. You can discipline yourself to read, and you can read every single morning and still not fulfill this command. This command doesn't say discipline yourself to read. It says like a newborn baby. You haven't been there maybe, but I do recall. Before some of you were born, or maybe most of you were born, our first daughter was born. Not too far away from here. Delightful experience in our life. Remember when she came home from the hospital and um, I decorated the house up with pink crepe paper and everything for my wife and my daughter to come home and got this cake ready and all this stuff to make it a very great day. They came home and uh, after 
we had eaten and gone to bed. Uh, I experienced something I never experienced in my life before. I heard this noise that I had never had in my house before. It was this baby crying for her mother. You know, it's interesting because my wife would bring her to bed, as she did with the three children that followed. And as she began to feed the babies, I would be supposed to be asleep. I'd have my head in the pillow trying to go to sleep. The baby certainly couldn't understand a word of English. But my wife would sit there as the baby sucked on her breast, and I can still hear her saying, Take it easy now, take it easy. I remember one of our children so sucked on the mother's breast that the breast was torn so much she could not even feed the baby. And then I stop and think, just like a newborn baby. You see, the issue isn't reading the Bible because you have to. The test of whether, in fact, the Bible is a priority in life is if you read it because you want to. I mean, I hear people talk, well, you eat three meals a day, you know, and you can't get by without eating regularly, therefore you have to eat spiritually regularly. Listen to me. Nobody forced you to eat today, I don't think. I don't have to tell my kids to eat. The only thing I ever caution them to do is to cut down on how much they eat, right? You don't eat because you have to. You eat because you want to. Do you insatiably thirst for the pure milk of the Word? Are you thirsty? Maybe you're not. And maybe there are reasons for it. I want you to look at this passage because I think there are some reasons why we don't. Look at this, if you will. He says in this passage, insatiably thirst, since or if you have tasted, and I assume that you have, that the Lord is gracious. Verse 3. If you have tasted... You have tasted, I'm sure. I have tasted. I recall when I first tasted. Do you? I was a missionary's kid. I was left in a mission home in Canada where my folks went to Africa, and I was not even six years old yet. Were not the best couple years of my life, I guarantee you. For a while in there were daily spankings and stuff, and I, uh, I couldn't keep out of trouble. So at all of six years old, I wrote a letter to my parents to tell them how bad life was. And they read the letter, and they ripped it up and made me rewrite it. You certainly don't want to tell your parents things like that. And I recall the summertime so clearly. could not tell you a date. It's really immaterial. Somebody came to town with a huge tent and they had these wooden benches and they ran a vacation Bible school. I remember they even gave out paper fish, you see, that we got for saying verses. But see, the highlight was the man stood up in front. He says, if you have a problem and you don't know where to go and who to talk to and you need help, I have somebody who can meet your need. And I went forward. And he gave me a verse. First John 1 9, what? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
And I that day tasted the kindness and graciousness of the Lord. But you know what? I was raised in a home where my folks went to church every Sunday, every Wednesday. We went to church without fail. I raised my kids the same way. I tell them we don't go because we have to, and we never do. I say we go because we get to, and because we want to, and we do. I recall I was in Japan ministering some years back, and I finished running one morning, and I saw a fellow out in front, and uh, they told me it was another missionary, so I was introduced to him later that day, and he said, do you want to run together tomorrow? I said, I'd be delighted to. So the next morning he came, and the very first thing, we barely started running, he says, uh, did you used to live in Wheaton, Illinois? And I said, I did. He said, do you have a friend called Glenn? And I said, I did. Now it's getting scary. And he's then the very next statement. I mean, this is right as we start running. He says, I think you dated my wife. I said, I did. Um, they were not the best years of my life. And I said to him, when, where, this is a scary question. I says, and where did I take your wife? He says, you took her to prayer meeting Wednesday night. And I didn't take her to prayer meeting because I was spiritual. My dad always went, and I went with my dad, and I guess she went with me. But you see, the issue of life over the years, when I was going to seminary, I pastored full-time, not far from here, went to school full-time, five days a week. And if it wasn't preparing the Bible for school, it was preparing the Bible for church. And seven days a week, it was the Bible for one or the Bible for the other. And it was Bible, 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 Bible. And then pretty soon what happens, what? Somehow you lose that sense of thirst. It becomes a job, it becomes something you academically do, but not something you thirst after. And I recall, you see, Jeremiah's words in Lamentations, what he says, God's faithfulness is great. Why? Because what? His mercies are renewed. What? Morning by morning. Do you remember when you first tasted how gracious God was through his word? Do you remember when you first came and found out how precious he was? I remember in the first pastor I had a fellow came to Christ, a barber, and immediately he read all the way through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And then he wanted something else to read, so somebody bought him a six-volume commentary, and he started reading that from the beginning. Why? Because he was thirsty. Do you remember how it was? I remind you, you see, the reason why many of us do not thirst anymore is because we have forgotten the graciousness of God. We fail to realize that every single morning of our life, God wants to do for us exactly what he did back then. He wants to, in a fresh way, speak to us. I've had those who ask me if I have my devotions in Greek or Hebrew. No, I don't. I go to the English Bible, which is my language, and I don't have any commentaries. And all I ask of God, and I asked of him this morning, please just talk to me. You see, somehow we need that sense of thirst, and we will thirst if we remember that God wants to do for us every day of our life what he did back then when he first touched our life and made it new again. Go with me, if you will, to verse 1. Notice, in verse 1, the very first word is therefore, and the reason it's there is because it connects verse 
1 to 3 with verses 22 to 25 of the previous passage. If you'll notice in that section, it's interesting because there's more comments on the Word of God in verses 22 to 25 in one concentrated section than there is almost anywhere except in Psalm 119. But it's interesting because there is another reason we might draw from that passage, which is very, very important. I think the, as you look back at verses 22 to 25, you notice something very, very important because for many of us, the reason we don't thirst is we forget the nature of this book to which we come. Notice, if you will, this word to which we come. Notice, he says, you've been born again. And in the context of this passage, what with what? He says, not with that which is corruptible, see, but incorruptible. Notice, through the living word of God. It's an awesome book. There is nothing like the Bible. It is alive. I realize for many they would want to say it is made alive, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says it is alive. Remember Hebrews 4.12? Listen to what it says. The word of God is, in the authorized version, said quick, which is the old English word for living. The same word is here. The word of God is living. You say, how do I know it's living? And the very next thing, because it's what? Because it's powerful. I know the Word of God is living because every single time I read it, it is powerful. How do I know it's powerful, he says in Hebrews 4, because it is what? Sharper than any two-edged sword. How do I know that? Because it divides asunder soul and spirit, bone and marrow. The Word of God is alive. And as you and I talk to each other, we recognize we're alive, and that's why it's a great conversation uh, and, and as we do this, but you know, as we come to the Bible, it's the same way it is alive. It is as no other book because it talks to us, it penetrates into our life, and it changes and transforms us, but it is a living Word of God. Notice something else in this passage, not only the living Word of God, he says you've been saved, not only the living Word of God, but he says the abiding Word of God. There is nothing like the Bible, absolutely nothing. I recall one day talking to my mother about some view that my brother, older brother, and I had in the raising of our children. And I remember her saying, um, son, I realize that you believe this way and your brother believes this way. And then came this word, but, and then she let me know how she felt. Well, basically, it's because from generation to generation, there are different ideas about maybe how we raise kids and what we do. In fact, it wasn't that long ago I was listening to a secular talk show where some lady called in and was having trouble with her children, and she says, I was having so much trouble with my son the other day, and I got so angry. I took all of those books on child rearing, went out and threw them in the trash, and then came back in and gave them a good spanking, and we've had a good time ever since. Um, you see, things change. You know the beauty of this? Something that never, ever, ever changes is this. It can't change. It won't change. And the beauty of life is, is that we have a book that abides and lasts forever. Just for a moment, go back with me, if you will, to the last chapter, I mean, first chapter of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 1, second last book in the Old Testament, as you well know. Zechariah chapter 1, a great, great, great passage. It is a plea from God to his people. And in Zechariah 1.3, the Lord says, 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. I need to pause here for a moment because notice in this verse three times he says, Lord of hosts, Lord of hosts, Lord of hosts. You know, it's amazing. God is the Lord of hosts. That's the whole point of this passage. In the context of the contrast of the fact he says to man, return to me. He is the Lord who says to the sea, be still, and it is still, because he is the Lord of hosts. He says to the sun, stand still, and the sun stands still, because he is the Lord of hosts. He says to the sun, go back a bit, because that's what Hezekiah would like, and the sun went back a bit, because he is the Lord of hosts. He says to the birds, go feed Elijah, and they went and fed Elijah, because he is the Lord of hosts. There is nothing in this world that does not obey his commands except for what? Except for man. And for us, is it such a great thing that he who is the Lord of hosts should demand of us that we come back and return to him? But notice in this passage, he says, as then he says in verse 4, Don't be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not take heed or give heed to me, declares the Lord. Now notice the question, your fathers, where are they? And the answer is they're dead. But notice verse 6, but did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? You know, it's an amazing thing. He says, you know, your fathers, they wouldn't listen to my word. But where are your fathers today? They're dead. But my word still abides today. But if that's not enough, look at back at verse 5. You might miss this as you run through the passage. And the prophets, even the godly prophets, do they live forever? And the answer is what? No, but my word does. You know, the most awesome thing about the ministry of the Bible is this. We're not going to last very long, but the word will last forever. Forever, the psalmist says, thy word is what? Settled in the heavens. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The most important thing I can give to my children is the Word of God. I'll never forget years ago, in a class, Greek class, during the summertime, a student came and says, did you read the Associated Press article this morning? And I said, no, which one? He said, it was the article about a man who started a Bible college down in Florida, Largest Bible college, I believe, at that time. Fifty-two years old and tremendous shape, as I found out later, talking to students who'd been there, played tennis every day, looked sharp, ran off with a 19-year-old co-ed. His wife stayed behind as a dean of women. His son took over the leadership of the school. And in a subsequent article in the papers, when they came and asked him, they said, since the school was started by your dad, is it going to fall apart now that he's gone? And he said, if this school was based upon my father, it would fall apart, but this school is based upon God and his word, and it will never, on that basis, fall apart. You know, it's interesting because I've reflected my dad. I, I worship my dad in a good sense. Desire of life would that I would be like my dad. That, to me, would be the epitome of life, as far as I'm concerned, in godliness and walk with God. I cannot imagine what it would be like had my dad done that. 
And by God's grace, I trust that I will never do something like that to my kids. But you know what? Should I ever fail my kids, I know one thing for sure. The Word of God will never, ever, ever fail them. It's an awesome word. It's a word that abides forever. Notice something else, if you will, going back with me to First Peter. It is a word that is not only living and abiding, but it's powerful. Notice, if you will, in this passage, First Peter chapter 1 again, we are born again through this living and abiding word. This is an awesome truth. Faith cometh by hearing, right? And hearing by what? The Word of God. Years ago, I met a Korean fellow who had been involved in uprisings in Korea many, many years ago. He and some buddies went down the streets of Korea, in this major city of Korea, in a streetcar, shooting people. He was imprisoned. He said, in prison, he says, we used to pick up every piece of paper we could find on the floor, he says, because we used it for cigarettes or for toilet paper. And he says, it just got to be a habit. You just naturally picked up any piece of paper you saw. And he says, one day as I was walking along, I saw a piece of paper not big enough for either a cigarette or toilet paper. But just because of instinct, he reached down and picked it up. The paper was only big enough to contain a verse in Korean, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Because of that little piece of paper and the verse on it, he called for the chaplain, committed his life to Jesus Christ. And when I met him, not only had his life so changed that they let him out of jail, they even let him out of the country. And I met him as he was traveling and preaching here. This word that we read is powerful enough to change life. We don't change life. He changes life, and the word changes life. Notice it not only gives life, but notice how it transforms our lives. Look, if you will, in verse 22. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls. You know, it's interesting because it is obedience to the word that purifies our souls, and we know that. Changes our lives, transforms us, not only makes us new beings in Christ, but changes the way we live. My folks, when they left me in a mission home, the reason they did was because my father was opening up a new field where missionaries had not gone before. Because of that, he left us where he did for two years. And as he opened this work, he made a commit with my mother. She would work on the language, and he would work on building. And they wouldn't let themselves get sidetracked by other things. But one day, somebody showed up with uh, what they'd done. They got a saw, and they put some manure on it, and then they put some leaves on it, and then they wrapped it with bark. And you know what it was like by the time they saw it. He couldn't handle it, so he took some drugs that he had and put it on the sore, and the sore got better eventually. And then pretty soon they kept coming. Everybody wanted to get healed, and they went to the white man to get healed. One day a man showed up, and he says, uh, I would like some of that medicine you gave to Sabilaya. My father said, What medicine did I give to him? He said, the man used to be the worst drunk in town and now drinks no more. You see, the beauty of all of this, the medicine you give us, what? It's the Word of God. It gives life. It changes life. It changed your life. It changed mine. 
This is the book we read. Notice something else. It not only is powerful enough to give life, to transform life, to produce growth. If you go down to 2.2, like a newborn babe, long for the pure milk of the Lord. Why? That you may grow in respect to salvation. It is an awesome thing. And for many of us, we come so casually to read the Word. We fail to remember how precious it was when we first tasted, and therefore we come and mechanically read it and think we've done our duty for the day. Or we come and fail to realize this is a living, abiding, powerful word that we're reading. I even fear, okay, and I just just a personal thing from a professor's point of view. I have a problem because you. Know